You're listening to After All Things, WSHU's daily news and culture update from the Long Island Sound region. Connecticut parents are a little confused over a new law on kindergarten eligibility. The South Fork Wind Project enters its final stages, and a new exhibit at the New Haven Museum documents the city's black history. Those stories and more are coming up. I'm Sabrina Garone. new law on the kindergarten age in Connecticut is causing confusion and some parents are scrambling. WSHU's Ebong Udama spoke with the Connecticut Mirror's Jessica Harke about her reporting on this issue. It's part of the collaborative podcast, Long Story Short. Connecticut's new law requires kindergarten students to be five by the 1st of September instead of the previous cutoff of January 1st. Why is that a problem for parents? That's mainly a problem because about a third of all kindergarten students have that late birthday. So now parents across the state are scrambling, trying to figure out if they can go to preschool an extra year. Will we have to pay out of pocket for a year of daycare? And trying to navigate that struggle. If a kid can't go to kindergarten next year and that's what you were anticipating, what are you going to do for those eight months in between when they can go to kindergarten? Now, you focused on Mariah Lopez and her son who turned four in December. Could you tell us what problems she's having uh, trying to figure it out? She's from New Haven. Yes. So she was telling me that she heard about this change, that her son wouldn't be able to go into kindergarten because of this age change. But she was never communicated, why was this changed? What are the next steps? And so when she learned about this in the fall, she was looking for websites, any information, couldn't find it. One of the big challenges is the Department of Ed has kind of taken a hands-off approach of, okay, we'll leave it up to every district for how they want to navigate this change. If they want a waiver process, how are they going to constitute if a child is ready or not for kindergarten? So she was looking everywhere for this information. She said that she was on the district website, couldn't find anything. And it wasn't until she wrote an op-ed that she said that she finally started hearing answers from other parents, teachers, and finally the district in January released what it was planning to do for the kindergarten waivers. But for weeks, she had no idea what the district wanted to do and what her avenue was going to be going forward. Now, how is this different from the other school districts? Because you you were saying that the State Department of Education has taken a hands-off. So Mm -hmm. each district is left on its own to try and figure out how to inform parents and how to implement this. So how is it different from district to district? Yeah, I mean, in New Haven with her son, her son was enrolled in pre-K-4 already in New Haven School District. And so their waiver model said, well, if your kid is already in pre-K-4, automatically he's going to kindergarten next year. And then you see things like in Westport, a parent just has to have written consent saying, I want my kid in kindergarten. They're going to grant that automatically. And then you see in like districts like West Hartford, where they're doing very strict evaluation models, looking how a child acts emotionally, socially, behaviorally. Can he hold a pencil? Can he count to 10? And seeing if they're age appropriate to go into kindergarten. Now, the Connecticut uh, Project Action Fund released a report just this month talking Mm -hmm. about the whole idea of having different standards for 
eligibility for uh, kindergarten. Could you just tell us what the report found and about what's going on in Connecticut as far as that's concerned? Yeah, so the report had two different aspects of it. First was a survey sent out to superintendents just asking, how are you navigating this change? Is it a good change? Is it a bad change? What are some difficulties with this? So that was the first aspect of this report. And the survey showed that most superintendents, I think they had 98 school district superintendents respond to this survey saying like, we need more funding. That's our biggest challenge is if we have to open more pre-K classes, we need teachers to hire. And if we're stripping that from kindergarten, that's another challenge. That was one of the things that they talked about in that survey. And then the second part of the report was they just had people go to every district website and try to find these answers on the website. And they were only able to find, I think 60% of school districts had this information readily available on their websites. So that was the second part is this information is hard to find. A lot of districts still don't know what they're doing. The report illustrated that as well. You also found out from talking to the different school districts that they're all quite open to helping parents navigate this. What are they saying and, and what are they doing? Yeah, I mean, one that I thought was really interesting was with Groton. They've had this transitional kindergarten model where for at least five or six years, they've looked at four-year-olds who were ready for kindergarten and said, okay, we have a model called transitional kindergarten, where it's basically a kindergarten model, but it's developmentally appropriate for four-year-olds. So you're still going to have the bus pick them up. You're still going to have lunch at school. There's still after-school programs for these children, but it's just tailored to a four-year-old rather than a five-year-old. And then at the end of that model, they can either be recommended to kindergarten saying, okay, now you're ready for that. Or if they're a little bit ahead, now they can go to first grade. So that was one interesting model that one school district is doing to kind of ease that transition into this. Another one was Fairfield, who's offering a new pre-K program where they're giving priority to these children who are four, maybe ready for kindergarten, but not quite at that five-year-old mark yet. So uh, basically, as we look forward to September, (laughs) from your reporting, what do you think we can anticipate? I talked to some experts, especially um, Fran Rabinowitz, who was saying, honestly, if we had just one more year, (laughs) this could be so much easier. And so I think that's the big struggle is districts are kind of saying, how do we make this happen? Only having one year to make it happen. And so, I mean, that's the hope is that you get as many kids in as you can if they are requesting the waiver. I mean, especially in bigger districts like Bridgeport and Hartford, um, where you have maybe 600 students being affected by this. That's kind of their approach is like, okay, let's just approve as many kids as we can for this waiver now, and we'll work for a better solution next year when we have a little more time. So I think the districts are doing everything they can at that point of let's see how to ease this as much as we can. But from the experts I spoke with, it's really hard to make something like this happen in a year. And they're advocating at least for um, the department or the legislature to push it back one more year for implementation. Okay. Thank you so much, Jessica. Jessica Hockey is the Connecticut Mirror's education reporter. I'm Ebon Mudama. Did you know New Haven was almost home to a black college? That story and more are highlighted in a new exhibit at the New Haven Museum. A conversation with one of the curators is coming up. First, a message from our supporter.
Local support comes from Hartford HealthCare, the only health system in the Northeast, with all its hospitals receiving A grades for safety from the LeapFrog Group, the nation's leading independent safety watchdog group, hartfordhealthcare.org. New York regulators approved new rules to allow for marijuana plants to be grown at home for personal use. This announcement from the State Cannabis Control Board comes three years after then-Governor Andrew Cuomo signed into law the legalization of recreational pot. John Kijia is director of policy at the State Office of Marijuana Cannabis Management. Now, while we know that uh, home cultivation of cannabis uh, and the idea around home cultivation of cannabis can raise fears of large grows in densely populated uh, uh, residential areas. The experience from other states tells us uh, that that really isn't the case, and it really informs our outlook for how personal cultivation might impact the New York adult use market. Kijia says the rules for recreational growers build on the requirements for medical patients and caregivers that were implemented last year. The regulation will not go into effect until mid-April after a public comment period. Components for the final wind turbine for New York's South Fork Wind project left State Pier in New London, Connecticut over the weekend. Three blades, tower sections, and a container will be constructed 35 miles east of Montauk Point to complete the 12-turbine offshore wind farm. South Fork Wind has already been delivering power to Long Island since December, and once it's all done, the 132-megawatt project will provide enough renewable energy to power 70,000 homes. exhibit at the New Haven Museum documents both enslaved and freed Black residents in New Haven and Yale throughout history. WSHU's Ada Uzenlar spoke with Michael Morand, one of the exhibit's curators, about the archival process. The exhibit is called Shining Light on Truth, New Haven, Yale, and Slavery. And notably, it's at the New Haven Museum rather than one of Yale's exhibition spaces. Tell me more about that decision and the relationship between New Haven and Yale in the context of Black history. President Salovey and all of us at Yale wanted this exhibition to be in a community space. So we are delighted that the New Haven Museum was eager and willing to host Shining Light on Truth, New Haven, Yale, and Slavery. We want it to be in a community space so it's as accessible as possible and to underscore that this is a shared history. The history of New Haven and Yale are intertwined from the beginning, the establishment of Yale. It is at once a Connecticut story, a New Haven story, and a Yale story. Having it in the New Haven Museum gives a platform to underscore that our history and our future are shared. And you're one of the curators of the exhibit. You're representing the Beinecke Library at Yale, which is just filled to the brim with manuscripts. Can you tell us about a few of the documents that were selected for it? This exhibition seeks to literally bring the receipts, including the account book for the construction of Connecticut Hall, oldest building on the Yale campus, and first brick building in Connecticut. That building was built in part by free and enslaved Black labor. Without free and enslaved Black labor, Yale, New Haven, and Connecticut would not have been built. So that's a key document. We also have on view the minutes and proceedings of the first annual convention of the free people of color 
meeting in Philadelphia. That was the dawn of the Black Liberation Movement. In 1831, that convention received a number of white allies, including Simeon Jocelyn of New Haven, and heard and endorsed their bold proposal to build a Black college in New Haven in 1831, what would have been the first HBCU, a college that would have done so much, but that was rejected by a vote of 700 to 4 by New Haven's white male property owners. Both of those documents give evidence and allow us access to essential stories of the past. You led me right to my next question. The gallery for the exhibit has been made into a reading room that evokes a library of that proposed Black college. How were those details figured out? We are involved in speculative fabulation, as it were, to create something evocative of something that was not. To do that, we have designed a seal for the college that wasn't, which has as its motto, knowledge is power, from those proceedings in 1831. We have created a space that encourages people to sit in chairs that are engraved with this seal, with five bookshelves that carry archival material reproductions and scores of other books. We have brought together images and biographies of more than 200 of the earliest Black students and alumni of Yale from the 1830s over the course of the next century to about 1940. Their biographies are in binders in this library to remind us of the great legacy of Black resilience and excellence in New Haven, and at the same time to showcase what more could have been had that college had been built. These 200 pioneers point a way to what could have been and hopefully what more can and will be. That was WSHU's Ada Uzenlar with curator Michael Morand. Shining Light on Truth, New Haven, Yale, and Slavery is open to the public for free now through August at the New Haven Museum. the latest news from Long Island and Connecticut, you can listen on the radio or stream anytime with the WSHU app or on our website, WSHU.org. After All Things is supported by Hartford HealthCare. And just like everything else you hear on WSHU, this podcast is also made possible with support from our listeners. So if you like what you hear, please consider making a donation to WSHU. All the information on how to do that is there for you on our website. I'm Sabrina Garon. Have a great rest of your evening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.